Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Michael Polyakov, president of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the CLT 10 is coming up, available on October 20th and 21st. Registration details can be found on our website. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to Anchor, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, today is a very exciting day. We have Dr. Michael Polyakov with us. Michael is the president of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. Michael is a Rhodes Scholar, a graduate of Yale and Oxford University. He has taught at Georgetown University, George Washington University, Hillsdale College, the University of Illinois at Chicago. He's also the author of numerous books and journal articles in classical studies and education policy. Dr. Polykoff, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's always a real honor to do anything with the classic learning test. I was just thinking to myself, what a gift this test is to the whole world of education. It's a truism and not just an empty phrase that assessment will drive standards. When I look at those sample questions so rich in meaning, I am just so pleased that this exists, that it's being used. And when I did one of those um, little sample quizzes, I'm very grateful that you didn't show anybody my paper because I found it very challenging. It is indeed. It is indeed. And thank you for, it means the world having your name behind what we're doing. Uh, Michael is on our board of academic advisors, and it's been, an, it's been a delight connecting with you at a number of active events over the years. Michael, I, I want to first though, talk about what will they learn? Uh, I, I first came across this maybe three or four years ago, um, where you were ranking every college and university in America on the basis of, do they have a robust, sound core curriculum? And only 23, last I checked, uh, had an A rating. It's an incredible list, and I think for parents listening to this right now, um, if you're trying to figure out what your students are going to learn over the four years they're going to spend, there is not a better resource out there than, than this. Dr. Polikoff, tell us about how this came together, uh, and how do you go about doing all of this research of so many colleges and universities? The genesis of this project, which is now entering its 12th year, is that question that is the title of the project, what will they learn? Colleges go after rankings in so many different things. The best known one, U.S. News and World Report, is really about reputation, status, wealth. It never addresses that question during those crucial and expensive few years in college. And what will they learn instead drills right down to what's the walk that the institution walks, not the talk. I, I will immediately cut to an example. Middlebury College in Vermont, which of course has 
a very bad reputation on freedom of expression, that's a, an issue that I'm sure we'll get into later on, says in its catalog that they are, quote, committed to educating students in the tradition of the liberal arts, which embodies a method of discourse as well as a group of disciplines. But when we did the review of what they require their students to take, we found that they let students graduate without any of the what will they learn college level courses. So they, of course, get an F rating. We don't do grade inflation at what will they learn. And it brought back to me just what a gulf there is between rhetoric and reality in terms of the way a school will or will not come together as an academic community and set priorities. I would, of course, as a former professor of classical studies, love to see a Latin requirement, but I yield to those who say, well, economics is more important, natural science is more important, mathematics is more important. It's time for the academic world at each institution to come together and say, this is what characterizes a college-educated person. Other things are wonderful. This is not the ceiling. It's a floor, but it's a secure floor, a foundation on which every graduate must stand. Michael, that is is so good. And I think it's impossible to exaggerate, I think, how important this work is. I, I will never forget being a college counselor 2014-15 2014-15 at Mount DeSales Academy in Catonsville, Maryland, and a, an admissions rep from Hopkins came to present. And at the heart of her presentation was that you don't have to take anything you don't want to take. You don't want to take a language, don't do it. You don't want to take history, don't do it. You just take whatever you want to take. At Hopkins, I was shocked, especially that this was her main value prop, that we aren't going to make you do anything you don't like. And I think of the analogy with kids, if you offer them pizza and ice cream for dinner every night, they're never going to eat their chicken and broccoli. That's exactly right. You take them to the supermarket and they don't run for the fruits and vegetables. They run for the ice cream and the candy counter. And that's okay, but parents are supposed to be the responsible adults. And the deans and provosts and presidents of colleges and the faculty, of course, are supposed to be the adults in the room. And instead of getting involved in turf battles between departments, they need to come together and really address what it means to be liberally educated. As a final kind of word about this, Michael, I mean, th- this is a lever to change all of American higher ed. If we could simply get reasonable parents to just not, don't send your son or daughter to a college that has D or an F. Uh, And with that, those colleges are going to have to go back and and reinstitute at least some kind of a core curriculum, uh, the meat and potatoes that every student needs to have. So uh, it's it's tremendous work, Michael. Can't thank you enough for that. If I could interrupt, I'm going to add one more thing for the parents. The average tuition and fees of the 23A schools is $22,470. The average tuition among the F schools in What Will They Learn is $35,080. So let's immediately break the connection between spending more and getting a better education. And What Will They Learn does give all that information. What's it going to cost? What's the four-year graduation rate? And of course, what will they learn? Michael, what, what is your alma mater yell get? Uh, I, you know, I, I've been so despondent. <laughs> I haven't looked in a while. I, um, I think it's a D. <laughs> and yes, I, I feel very um, let down by my alma mater. 
Recently, you co-signed the Philadelphia Statement on Strengthening of Liberal Democracy with other influential scholars and policy experts and writers. And the letter delivers the crucial statement that our liberty and our happiness depend upon the maintenance of a public culture in which freedom and civility coexist, where people can disagree robustly, even fiercely, yet treat each other as human beings and indeed as fellow citizens, not as mortal enemies. What do you believe to be the root cause uh, of, as the letter notes, intellectual challenges being met with censorship? What, what is the root cause of this? This is certainly one of the most distressing things that's happened in the world of higher education. Some of it comes from a, a very bad ideology that has spread um, within higher education. Uh, perhaps the most pernicious sign of that is, is something that Ben Shapiro actually put his finger on some years ago. The idea that speech is violence and can properly be met with physical violence. That a speaker who says something that a, um, a group doesn't like is committing some kind of criminal act and therefore that it's totally okay to silence it rather than to listen to it and to be able to respond with more words and more speech. This is something that goes back all the way to Herbert Marcuse, who it seems actually began to regret what he had started, but now it's back with a vengeance. The idea that there's something wrong about listening to Charles Murray, himself a distinguished scholar. The very fact that he's allowed to speak is considered some kind of offense against one or another or several groups. So that's been quite dangerous. Another part of it is the spinelessness of administrators who are unwilling to do the kind of work that leaders should do, set firm rules and to enforce them rather than caving in to student demands, sometimes student and faculty demands. Although now it seems I, maybe to quote T.S. Eliot, virtue is thrust upon us by our impudent crimes, that many of the people who winked at this bad ideology are themselves being bitten by it and are recognizing that we do need in higher education a thorough reset in which we recognize that there is no such thing as true education without the complete freedom of inquiry, the right to, as C. Van Woodward wrote years ago, to challenge the unchallengeable. Everything in progress depends on people being bold and innovative thinkers, being refuted when they're wrong, but encouraged to push to the frontiers of knowledge and understanding. Michael, was there a turning point, do you feel like, where, where cancel culture kind of took over? Again, a very good question. It's not as if this is new. That's to say, I had referenced C. Van Woodward. The C. Van Woodward Committee report was issued in 1975, following a series of pretty egregious shoutdowns at Yale University. And for quite some time, it seems to have had a really great effect in getting higher education to recognize that the free exchange of ideas is a crucial element of education. Why, within the last decade, we've had such a virulent recrudescence is a question I can't fully answer. Some of it, I think, comes from 
all the way back to rather bad child rearing, the idea that instead of training children from early on to live with the things that make them uncomfortable, to address them meaningfully, to understand compromise and discussion, we've had too much of a capitulation to an attitude of comfort. And human beings don't move forward when they're entirely comfortable. Part of an educator's job is to move people out of the familiar, to be able to deal with the things that are disturbing in hopes that that will actually get them to a higher level of truth and understanding. And when I say truth, of course, the, that lurking problem within the postmodern world that there is no truth, um, and therefore we need to give up trying to find it, that again has a, an effect in basically silencing the diligent and the unremitting pursuit of truth. We may never find it, but we can never give up the search. We had for our, our debut podcast, Robert P. George on the program, and he discussed his enduring uh, and famous friendship with progressive professor Cornell West. And he discussed their conversations and seminars involved the common intellectual tradition, uh, discussing and debating everything from Plato to St. Augustine. Uh, and this is the work CLT strives to do as well, to connect students with this common heritage. Current culture uh, attempts to stamp out this tradition, but in your opinion, why is it important for the future of civil discourse uh, that the great books be preserved? I'm here going to channel Alan Bloom's wonderful work. And one of the things that he pointed out so eloquently is that the Western tradition is a tradition of difference, discourse, controversy, and argument. It's hardwired into the great books that every reader needs to be reading actively to be thinking things through. And that is not a universal thought pattern. It's one of the great privileges that we have within Western civilization. So sad it is to me when Western civ is looked upon as repressive. In fact, it's one of the most wide open traditions that has ever existed. It, it certainly encourages um, sometimes a, a level of dissent that we find hard to deal with. But I wish the dissenters would recognize that what has empowered them is in fact that same tradition. I was thinking in the um, aftermath think of um, Congressman John Lewis's death, that great figure, how committed he was to the free exchange of ideas. In fact, you, you probably know his eloquent statement that without free speech, the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings. And I, I just wish that those who are so eager to tear down the great dialogue of the ages would recognize that all the progress we've made comes from that commitment to, the, to dialogue and discussion. Michael, can you tell us uh, the work that ACTA is focused on right now? ACTA uh, divides the world somewhat like um, Caesar's Gaul into three parts. Academic standards most clearly seen in what will they learn and in other work that we do on uh, the importance of keeping civic education, or I shouldn't say keeping, reviving (laughs) civic education, uh, especially in higher education. 
Our, our second A is, of course, academic freedom, the free exchange of ideas. And the third is accountability. We're um, quite um, aggressive in pushing schools to keep their tuition costs low, to keep their administrations lean, to make sure that they prioritize spending on the core mission, which is teaching and learning, and not on bureaucratic bloat, uh, of which we see entirely too much. So yes, those, those three things. And right now we have been certainly advocating the widespread adoption of the Chicago principles of freedom of expression. We've been urging donors to higher education to be very deliberate in putting some strings on their gifts to make sure that institutions are honoring their intent to see high academic standards and the free exchange of ideas and the prioritization of spending on the things that really matter. We are in a crisis right now, a civilizational crisis. I, I was just looking at the Pew Research Center study that pointed out that more than one-third of adults aged 18 to 29 say that there are other countries that are better than the United States. I, I find that just shocking. These shores that have been the light to the nations that people from all over the world hunger to embrace, that a third of our citizens, young citizens, would say they'd rather be someplace else. I don't know what your experience has been in life, but I, I've spent a fair amount of time overseas. I love the exchange of cultures. I do consider myself rather a global citizen, but I hunger each time to be back to the United States and recognize all that it's done for the world. And in that same poll, we heard that young people are far less likely to answer that it's essential to live in a country that's governed democratically. These are shocking failures on the part of education. Yeah, and, and this this abrupt break uh, with with history that can give young people a sense that their current life in 2020 America is about as good as it's ever been anywhere for anybody. Uh, when you stop teaching history, students quickly lose sight uh, that that is the reality that they're living and, and they can start to feel very, very oppressed. So as busy as you are, the important work that ACTA is doing, uh, do you have much time for leisure reading, Michael, on your own? I try to make time for that because it's one of those habits of mind. The books that I, I, I enjoy so much are historical works. Neil Ferguson is one of my very favorites. I've been trying to make my way through his uh, wonderful books. He's been very prolific. Uh, right now, I've taken a little bit of a, of a detour from my favorite reading, although I will say I've got uh, the things that matter. Uh, my detour has... Um, has really been very, very enjoyable when I've been teaching my older daughter Greek, classical Greek, making our way through Hanson and Quinn, and um, been reading a little Xenophon along the way. And, uh, you know, of all the ways to bond with one's um, young adult child, I, I find that one just one of the most wonderful ever. <laughs> so, so, yes, that's been my, my kind of summer project. Oh, that, that's beautiful. And as a road scholar, I, I picture you as as a speed reader, just just plowing through two books a night or something. Uh, do you typically plow through one novel uh, and then on to the next one, or do you find yourself reading multiple books at a, a given time? One of the things that I really admired about Thomas Jefferson, he made himself this kind of lazy Susan, where he keep 
several books open. I, I actually, truth be told, true confessions, I, I'm a rather slow reader. Maybe that comes from having been a um, classicist through my adult life. That uh, I, I really like to look at the way not just thoughts but sentences are shaped. Um, and um, I, I realize at times that's almost a bit of a liability. <laughs> so at times I try to force myself to, um, to read a little faster, but I, I get such enjoyment out of language. Michael, every episode we ask uh, this question to our guest. What text has influenced you most and why? Virgil's Aeneid, clearly the gateway to civilization. Uh, it, it has some competitors, when I'm asked that question, I have a tendency sometimes to get rather snappy and say, well, you're asking me of my five children which one I love the most. <laughs> I can't answer that question, but I'm going to attempt to, um, to answer it. Virgil's Aeneid is one of the great challenges if it's read carefully. The greatest of all men, of all mankind, Aeneas in this epic, who's called Pious Aeneas, who's been given the charge by his father in the underworld. He visits the ghost in the underworld. Roman, remember, it's uh, Romane Mementel. He doesn't say son, he doesn't say Aeneas. He says, Roman, remember, this is your mission. Parcara subjectis et debilaris superbos. Spare the fallen, disarm the arrogant. Fast forward to the end of the epic. Aeneas has his enemy Turnus wounded but not fatally at his feet, begging. And Aeneas, outraged that Turnus had killed Aeneas's friend, hesitates for a moment and plunges his sword into the throat of his suppliant enemy. And so the question comes, if Aeneas, this perfect human, failed, what does it tell us? It tells us always to be vigilant against those forces that pull us into passions that we may later, later regret. There were, there were those who argued that Virgil, who had died before its ultimate completion, would never have ended it that way. No, he is warning us. He is telling us. Now, of course, Virgil is pre-Christian. Um, there's no influence from the Jude Judeo side of the Judeo-Christian that we can see. But that message is so much of the DNA of the West. We are fallen. We are weak. Labor to be better. For uh, our parents uh, listening, where do they go to find out more about ACTA? And how can they find out what uh, the, the schools their son or daughter is looking at, what they are ranked according to what will they learn? Uh, we just this year released a new website, which is very user-friendly. And it's simply whatwillthelearn.com. The main ACTA website will also take people there. That's goacta, G-O-A-C-T-A dot org. And I, I will add the, the new website has not only the ratings of the schools, but it's got a site called Hidden Gems about schools that are not well known, but have really wonderful academic programs. It lists the oases of excellence, these programs at schools that offer students things that go beyond, like great books programs, programs in free market, programs that encourage debate. We put a badge on schools that have adopted the Chicago principles of freedom of expression. Oh. So lots of things that will help a um, parent 
and a college-bound student choose wisely. It allows the quick comparison of several schools at once so that um, students or parents who want a particular region but only want schools that got an A or a B rating uh, can put all those factors in at once and, and make prudent decisions. Michael, this has been a real treat. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for the, the very important work that ACT is doing. Well, thank you. And I, I, I return that compliment. The, the classic learning test is really one of the great breakthroughs. And uh, I, I'm honored to be on the board of advisors. And as you know, we'll do everything possible to make sure that it is well known and well respected in the field as it deserves to be. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Join us next week when we'll be visited by Catherine Burblesing, renowned British educator and founder of the Michaela Community School in London. CLT, reconnecting knowledge and virtue.